What a powerful name it is. In the Bible, the name is not just a name. It's your personality, it's your person, it's your presence. It's all of that. The name of Jesus is the person of Jesus, and what a powerful person he is. Let's pray together. In this moment, why do you need the power of Jesus? Why do you need Jesus to be all that Jesus is? Why do you need more of Jesus today? Name that place where you just need his encouragement or his hope or leadership, direction, forgiveness, grace, assurance, peace. Ask him to be your good shepherd where you need a shepherd today. Father, that's my prayer as well. I pray you'll be our shepherd even in these moments, even in this time in your word. Lord God, I pray that this will be your word, not mine. This will be your truth, spoken by your spirit, directly into our hearts. Do that miracle only you can do today, Father, by speaking to each of us as if there were only one of us and giving us that word of direction and encouragement and hope that is your gift you intend for us. I pray that for me. I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Halloween. You didn't dress up. Not yet, anyway. Although it's kind of a crazy thing I saw this week that one in three Americans think there should be no age limit to Halloween. That's frightening. You know, Dennis? I mean, what would you go as, Dennis, if you were going to, you know? We should talk about that, Paula. What should Dennis be on Halloween, right? We could have that conversation. David, you know, you'd probably go as a longhorn. I don't know. A sad longhorn. Yeah, that's right. You know, David, we've got a solution for your problem. If they would just make the fourth quarter illegal, you guys would be undefeated, you know? But apparently they haven't done that yet, have they? So, But we're not, we Baylor supporters are not rubbing it in, David. Just want you to know that. Not a bit. Never do that. I didn't go to Baylor, but we have a son that has two degrees from there. They should name a building after us. All the money we spent for two degrees from Baylor. But none, we digress, right? You didn't come to hear about all that. So nonetheless, Halloween. Halloween, the interesting holiday. Interesting holiday. 70% of Americans say they participating in Halloween in some way or other. But if you have small children at home, the number goes to 91%. And I thought this was interesting. 88% of parents whose children are trick-or-treating say they plan to eat the candy, <laughs> which is a whole other sermon for a whole other day, isn't it? But you know, Halloween, a secular holiday, obviously, and yet I've been asked more questions about Halloween than all the other holidays put together. Been pastoring for nearly 40 years now, and, you know, no one's ever come up and said, well, you know, Thanksgiving's become so secular, should we still do it? Or Christmas, you know, with all the secularity of that, should we still do it? Fourth of July is obviously not a biblical holiday. Uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day. But Halloween, it's such a challenging holiday, isn't it? Should we do this? Should we not do it? What's the story? What's the background? How should Christians respond to it? Well, it's about a whole lot more than today, turns out. It's kind of a parable for our culture. And a lot inside this that I think we can unpack that applies every day of the year as we learn how to make Christ our good shepherd. So let me do just a little bit of history, and then we're going to look at what Scripture says, and we're going to see how that helps us where we are today, all right? So Halloween starts 20 centuries ago with the ancient Celts on what we call the islands of Great Britain, didn't call it that back in the day, and a holiday they called So-In. Now, it looks like Samhain, but it's actually in Celtic pronounced So-In or Saw-In. 
their first day of the year, New Year, was November 1st. They didn't start New Year on January. They started the New Year November 1st. Well, that was a difficult day for them because winter is coming. And 20 centuries ago in the British Isles, winter could be deadly. could be very dangerous, obviously cold and dreary and difficult and all of that. And so they're getting ready to step into the hardest part of the year. Well, the day before their new year, October 31st, last day of the old year, they saw as kind of a borderline between the old and the new and the past and the present and the dead and the living. They believed that ghosts were especially active on October 31st, the eve of their new year. And so they lit bonfires to frighten them away. They were, thought these ghosts would wreak havoc on their homes and their lives and so forth. On a positive side, they thought the ghosts would help their priests predict the future more effectively. So they would dress up as ghouls and what we would think of as goblins and kind of occultic figures in order to frighten the ghosts away. And they would predict the future with each other and their priests would predict the future and all of that. And all of that, 20 centuries ago, is the historic origin through all sorts of iterations into Europe and immigrants over here and all sorts of other stuff in the story, but long story short, that's where Halloween originally comes from, is the, this kind of occultic thing with witches and warlords and tarot cards and all of that, all of which, from an occult perspective, we are forbidden from. In Ephesians 6, the Bible says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wrote an article Friday about Halloween and had several references to why we are not to be engaged in the occult. The occult is dangerous. The occult opens the door to the enemy. The occult is not only deceptive, it can be deadly. Let me urge you not to get involved with the occult. All right? Well, that's the downside of Halloween. There's an upside of Halloween. There's a positive side. So fast forward to the 7th century, 609 A.D., and the Roman Catholic Church creates a thing they call All Saints Day. And they eventually move it to November the 1st. All Saints Day, I'm writing about this from an article tomorrow, is a day to commemorate the saints of the ages. Now, in the Catholic tradition, a saint's a little different than we understand. There are stages, five stages to go through for somebody to be a saint. And so on All Saints Day, the Catholic tradition would venerate the saints of history. And a more Christian, well, I don't mean more Christian, but in a Protestant tradition, All Saints Day has come to mean really just uh, appreciating the saints of history. It's a great thing to do, to remember those that have gone before us, to remember even those with us today who are living for Christ, who are living all out for God. That's All Saints Day, also called All Hallows Day, all right? So the day before is All Hallows Eve, which eventually gets known as Halloween. So Halloween is All Hallows Eve, day before All Saints Day. And to replace, so in, in this Celtic pagan tradition, the Catholic Church, on the day before All Saints Day, started introducing bonfires and parties and dressing up. But instead of dressing like witches and warlords, you, you dress up like angels and saints. 
Instead of thinking about pagan gods and worshiping them, you'd be worshiping the Lord and you'd be thinking about the saints of the ages and all that sort of thing. And so Halloween became redeemed in a Christian context. And so it is today in many, many places. Uh, There are churches that today are doing what's called trunk or treat events where they're inviting people to come on the campus and do trick-or-treating, but in a lot of places, trick-or-treating is a little less safe than it used to be. Going out knocking on doors these days, a little more dangerous in some places. So churches are doing this and inviting families onto their campus. And you're thinking, well, why are they doing that? Well, it's a service to the community to begin with. But you are 70% more likely to go to a church on Sunday if you've already been on the campus for some other reason. If you've been to a church to play in the basketball league, or if you've been there for an event, or a fellowship, or a bridal shower, or a trunk or treat, you're more likely to come back to church on Sunday. And so churches are redeeming Halloween as a way of inviting even non-Christians onto the campus and eventually to church. I'm reading about Christians that are using Halloween to get to know their neighbors better. When someone knocks at their door for trick-or-treat and they don't know them, they introduce themselves and develop relationships. Some are passing out tracts on Halloween. Some are passing out invitations to church. I'm not sure if I was a kid and I opened up what I hope was candy and it was an invitation to church. I'd be all excited about it. Probably should put candy in there as well. But nonetheless, you can redeem it and turn it into something that really has a great deal of spiritual value. So, all that to say, you've got Halloween on one side, you've got All Saints Day on the other side. There's a way to live on the right side every day, to live with the abundant life Jesus intends every day, and these two holidays are a parable for that. So, with that as the longest introduction to a sermon in Christian history, let's look at the text, all right? We've been looking at the I Am's of Jesus. We've started with, we're looking at them chronologically through John's gospel, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus, last week, we heard Jesus is the door of the sheep. This week, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, there's some background behind this, some stories, some tradition that we need to know in order for all of this to kind of make sense with us, all right? The previous verse is why this I am is so important. We saw this last week, where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The word abundantly means overflowingly, more than you would ever expect, surprisingly even. It's a way to say it. So how do you get the abundant life of the good shepherd? Well, you have to make two decisions. The first one is to know that he is the good shepherd. So some background here, if I could. All right. Jesus says, I, it's emphatic, am, present tense, not could be, not might be, am, right now, the, definite article, only one, good shepherd. That was a shocking thing for Jesus to claim in his day. And here's why. In Judea, the southern part of Israel, there's a plateau. You see it there. 35 miles long, 14 to 17 miles wide. It's what you cross as you make your way up to Jerusalem from the Dead Sea. Those of you that have been with me to Israel may remember we made our way south, then we turned west, and you climb from 1,300 feet below sea level up to 2,500 feet above sea level. That's Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. There's that plateau there, and that's where the Bedouin still tend sheep today. That's where David was a shepherd. That's where shepherds tend their sheep even still today. That's a picture of modern-day Bedouin, doing it just like they did it in the time of Abraham, 
and in the time of David. Now, originally, being a shepherd, having that job, was a prestigious, significant uh, vocation. Sheep tending, very, very important to the economy, to the culture of the day, even still today. In the 23rd Psalm, you get a good picture of what a good shepherd does. You know the 23rd Psalm. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Not a lot of green grass in the Judean desert. And a lot of weeds that are poisonous. So the shepherd leads the sheep to the green grass. He leads me and he says, David says, he, um, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. She, sheep are terrified of running water. They're eight times heavier, wet than dry. They can drown in running water. So the shepherd has to know where the still waters are and will lead the sheep to the still waters. David says, he restores my soul, leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. There are paths all over the Judean wilderness that lead off a cliff, and sheep will walk off that path. So the shepherd leads him in paths of righteousness. David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's an actual valley in the Bedouin areas where they keep the sheep in the Judean wilderness. When you're down there where the thieves and the predators can get at you, he says, I'll fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. His rod and staff comfort me. The rod beats away the predators and the staff catches the sheep before they fall into a crevice. Later in the psalm, David says, you anoint my head with oil. Insects are a huge problem for sheep. And so the, uh, the shepherd will anoint their face and their neck with oil to keep the insects away. My cup runneth over. There are places where they don't have water, but the shepherd does. And so he'll pour his water into a dish that runs over, and the sheep can drink from that. So the 23rd Psalm is just a, a description of what a good shepherd does. Shepherds were vital in their day and their culture. However, over the centuries, the vocation from the time of David to the time of Jesus underwent a transformation. The shepherds were unsupervised for months at a time, so they could steal from their master's flocks, they could steal from others, and they were out in the wilderness and no one knew. It got so bad that you were forbidden by law from buying an animal from a shepherd by Jesus' day. Shepherds were so notorious for immorality that they were not allowed to testify in a court of law. They couldn't vote. And because they couldn't keep the ritual Jewish laws out there in the wilderness, they couldn't go in the temple, they couldn't even go in a synagogue. By Jesus' day, shepherding was a disreputable industry. That's why it's so surprising for Jesus to come along and say, I am the good shepherd. The word good means beautiful here in the Greek. It'd be like me saying, I am the good drug dealer. Or I am the good trafficker or whatever it might be. That, that, it's almost that shocking, the idea here. That's Jesus' statement. They may be bad, but I'm the good shepherd. I do what good shepherds do. I still lead you to green grass and still waters and righteous paths, and I still beat away the thieves and the predators in the valley of the shadow of death, and I still anoint your face with oil, and my cup runs over, and I will follow you all the days of your life. That's still what I do, Jesus is saying. I am the good shepherd. How do you know? Because he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and that, of course, Jesus did for us on the cross. He's the only one that ever did that. I mean, no disrespect when I say the prophet Muhammad didn't die for you, nor did Buddha, nor did the Jewish rabbis, 
nor have the Hindu masters, nor have any political leaders or celebrities or athletes, only one person in all of human history ever died for you to take your sin on his sinless self. And he's the good shepherd. If you want his abundant life, you start by calling him your good shepherd. You start by following him as your good shepherd. Now, to do that, you've got to take a second step. That's the first one. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. You're a sheep. If you're going to call him your shepherd, you've got to admit you're a sheep. And you may just think that's not good news. It is really not good news. All right? The most common metaphor in the Bible for humans is sheep. And it is not a compliment. If you've ever tried to raise sheep, you understand it is not a compliment. We had a good friend on our staff in Midland. He had a ranch outside of town, and he wanted to know more about sheep. He had cows. He had horses. Wanted to know more about sheep. So Bob Hopkins, so we called him Uncle Bob. So Uncle Bob raised sheep till he couldn't stand it anymore. Had to get rid of them. He said they are the dumbest things he'd ever been around. He said, for instance, he wanted to test them one time. So he got a stick, and he got the sheep in a row, and he got the first sheep to jump over the stick, Then he got the second sheep to jump over the stick. Then he threw away the stick, and the sheep jumped over the air. No kidding. Bob said, I understand why these paths of righteousness, because they'll wander off a path. And if the first sheep walks off the path and dies, the others will follow. The whole flock will follow, he said. That's how dumb sheep are. He understood something about the running water and the still water. He said out there, it doesn't rain often in Midland, but when it does, it can be torrential. And he said he had to be really careful because if his sheep were out, and it was one of these torrential downpours we get sometimes in West Texas, the sheep could get so heavy that they'd fall over on their side, and they would drown in a puddle. He said they're not only smelly, they're not only dirty, they're dumb. He said they are just dumb animals. Have you ever seen a trick sheep in a circus? You know, you ever seen anybody put a sign on their back fence that says, warning, attack sheep? Sheep are defenseless. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are easily misled. Sheep don't know weeds from grass. Sheep don't know good paths from wrong paths. And we're sheep. And the sooner we admit that, the sooner we'll make Jesus our shepherd. And then he'll lead us to the abundant life. But we don't want to hear that. And even right now, you and I in the back of our minds someplace are saying, well, I know that's everybody else, but maybe not so much me. We're thinking, which kind of shows how dumb we really are as sheep, I'm sorry to say. Part of it is there's this will to power, as Nietzsche said. It's human nature, this desire for power, this desire for self-promotion, this desire to, uh, to uh, kind of be our own God. It goes back to Genesis 3. Remember Satan? tempting Adam and Eve, you will be as God. The reason he does that is because it works, because we all want to be our own God. I do too. I'm tempted right now to try to impress you with me more than Jesus. I'm here talking to you right now. Every time I write something, every time I say something, I've got to deal with the will to power. So do you. It's our human fallen nature. It's Satan's tempting strategy. Every temptation is a variation on one theme. Be your own God by stealing that or by doing this or by not doing that. Every temptation, same thing. And our culture applauds self-made, self-dependent, self, 
driven people, doesn't it? President Joe Biden hardly ever misses an opportunity to tell you that his father was a used car salesman from Scranton, Pennsylvania, right? And he's not the only one. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton raised by single mothers. Ronald Reagan's father, a traveling salesman and an alcoholic. Jimmy Carter, growing up as a peanut farmer. We celebrate the self-made people, and for all sorts of good reasons. The Bible does, too. You think about Joseph, who made his way from the prison to the palace. You think about Billy Graham, the son of a dairy farmer who becomes a global evangelist. But the difference is when we depend on us more than Jesus, when we won't admit that we're sheep who need a shepherd, because a shepherd can only lead the sheep who admit they need a shepherd. Nobody can lead you if you won't follow. Nobody can give you what you won't receive. If we won't admit that we're sheep, we won't follow the good shepherd, and we'll miss the abundant life that Jesus died to give. And it's kind of that simple. So it comes to those decisions. Admit that Jesus is the only good shepherd, not you, and that you're a sheep. And you'll start every day with Jesus. You'll start every day by seeking His will for that day, by surrendering to His Holy Spirit for that day. You'll read the Bible because you need what God says in His Word, not just to check the God box. You'll pray because you need God's help and leadership, and you need to praise Him, and you need to worship Him because you're a sheep who's so grateful for a shepherd. And you'll come to chapel because you need to be here in the presence of the Lord and His people. And it changes everything if we admit we're a sheep who need a shepherd. It changes everything. So, what does that have to do with Halloween? Seems to me Halloween is a parable of our culture. So, how does it work? You dress up in something to convince people you're not who you really are. Then you go out knocking on doors, hoping to impress people enough that they'll give you some candy. And then when you eat the candy, you go out and do it again. And then when we grow up, all that really happens is we change costumes. And we change candy. But it's the same deal, right? On the other hand, tomorrow is All Saints Day. A saint is a holy person. The Bible says, if Christ is your Lord, you're a saint. The Bible describes Christians over and over and over again as saints, set apart ones. Now live like it. And the way we live like it is by admitting that we're not, but Jesus can make us. It's by admitting that we're sheep who need a shepherd. And it's celebrating the incredible good news that the good shepherd is still the good shepherd. Still the good shepherd. So let me ask you where you need a good shepherd today. Where do you need to admit you're a sheep? Where will you follow your shepherd? That's the choice. It can be Halloween or it can be All Saints Day every day of the year. Close with this. Old story about a program at which a young actor and an elderly retired pastor were both to make a presentation. They had both been asked to recite the 23rd Psalm from memory. So time came in the program for the young actor. He went first. 
made his way confidently to the stage, to the lectern, recited the 23rd Psalm with a deep, resonant voice, with remarkable artistic creativity and eloquence and dramatic pauses and presentation and performance. And when he was done, the crowd applauded enthusiastically. And then after he sat down, the elderly pastor, leaning on his cane, made his way up the stage. And in a strained, quiet voice, recited the song. When he was done, there was a hushed reverence. People had tears in their eyes, deeply moved. And when the pastor made his way back down, the young actor stood to his feet and said, I wish to say something. When I recited the psalm, you applauded. When my friend recited the psalm, you were moved to tears. And the difference is this. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Choose. Let's pray. In this moment, would you admit to God that you're a shepherd, or a sheep rather, and that you need a shepherd? Would you just tell him that? Lord, I'm a sheep. I admit it. I need you to lead me to the grass and the waters and the paths. And I need you to protect me in the valleys and anoint me and protect me and lead me and guide me. Lord, I'm a sheep. Would you just tell him that? Now, would you thank him that he's a shepherd, the good shepherd? And then would you ask him to lead you where you need to be led today? To protect you, to help you, to forgive you, whatever it is, where you most need a good shepherd, ask him to be that for you today. And as we close, if you don't know the good shepherd, and if you don't know the shepherd, if you've not asked Jesus to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord, I urge you to do that today. Get alone with him. Pray that simple prayer. Just say, Lord, I ask you to forgive my sins and failures. I ask Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And then tell a Christian what you've done so they can help you grow in your faith. And if you've done that, you know the shepherd. How close to the shepherd are you today? Father, thank you for the hope with which we can leave today to know that there truly is a good shepherd in every valley, in every desert, in every circumstance, in every need. There's a good shepherd. Thank you that he's our shepherd. We make him our shepherd today, and we make this our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the next two weeks, as Mike said earlier, I'm Actually, in Tyler next week, in Houston the week after. And so you're trading up, friends. And uh, Janet will be here the next two weeks. And Time Change Sunday, next Sunday. Uh, still remember the time we missed the memo, Janet and me. Been married a couple years. Showed up at our church. Nobody there. Thought, the rapture's coming. We were left behind. <laughs> Turned out we weren't. At least not that occasion. So, yeah. So if you get here early, you can help Mike and Sheila set up. Right? Because, you know, they'll be here. But other than that, change your clocks and come back next week. God bless. Have a good week.